I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land we're broadcasting from today and the lands you're listening to us from. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I take a moment to acknowledge traditional custodians' connection to and care for country that here extends back some 60,000 or so years and continues today. I also acknowledge any First Peoples listening to this episode. So we've just started feeding free hair now and everything seems to have settled down. So I think what I'm learning is that if the horses are behaving any differently than what their standard is, I immediately go to health and feed actually and what they're eating because I think it influences them so much. And we can't necessarily control it all, but to err on the side of caution can hopefully stop problems rather than just doing the same thing and getting in a, di- a bigger, bigger hole. Hopefully that can help. Welcome to episode eight of an equine conversation, our final episode for series one. We are so pleased to have you join us for series one and particularly for this final episode. Stay tuned at the end of the conversation with Julia for some exciting announcements. This podcast is brought to you by Abby's Run Equestrian. I'm your host, Sarah Nichols, and I have been teaching people about horse management, handling and riding for over 27 years through riding schools, pony clubs, working equitation clubs, adult riding clubs, and privately. And I am the founder and owner of Abby's Run Equestrian. Through an equine conversation, I'll share my expertise with you, along with helping you connect to and hear from some amazing experts in their own fields. We'll also be talking with horse owners about their journey with their horses. This podcast aims to help you the horse owner improve your knowledge by giving you access to top quality information that will help you be the best horse owner you can be so that you can give your horses the best life possible. We'll explore ways our horses can be physically and mentally healthier through topics around training, horse health, enrichment, emergency preparedness, history, our own mental well-being and physical health and more. These podcast episodes are absolutely designed to be thought-provoking and they may bring you some ideas, approaches or information that you haven't come across previously. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Julia Inglis, a very good friend of mine who I met virtually through a mutual friend. Julia lives over in Western Australia, the other side of the country from me, and we're actually yet to meet in real life. But Julia and I are messaging one another and sometimes talking almost daily about horse training and management. While we had so much we talked about discussing on this episode, so many ideas for topics, we decided that actually the best place to start was with Julia's story, or at least some of it. It's a story that there is a lot to learn from. So now let me introduce you to my good friend, Julia. Julia Inglis grew up in the UK and was animal mad from a young age, catching her first pet when a rabbit wandered into her garden. She learned to ride at school but stopped for many years when she went to university in Glasgow before moving to London for further studies. Julia completed her PhD in neuropharmacology in 2004 and went on to establish a research career in the area of pain mechanisms in arthritis. 
After completing her studies, Julia started writing again at a local writing school, and around this time she met her now husband at a conference. He lived in Perth, Australia, and in a bid to persuade her to move there, started sending adverts for horse properties and horses. Within months, Julia up and moved to Australia, and they bought their first horse, which soon became two, then three, and is now a small farm full of animals. Julia rode traditionally for close to a decade, bush riding and dressage, but when her horse refused to move under saddle, ended up learning about alternative ways to train and positive reinforcement. This has now become her passion and obsession as it combines science and training geekery with animals, her two great loves. Julia is one of my closest friends and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Julia to an equine conversation today to share her story Julia, welcome. I know we were initially discussing topics for this podcast, but we ended up doing a full circle background talking about your equine journey and all the twists, turns and learnings that you've had along the way before we even get to some of the topics we talked about talking about. You, you mentioned here in your bio that you learned to ride at school. So maybe let's start with that. So your, your early horsey encounters, how, you know, what age did you kind of start with horses? Yeah, I think I was about 10 or 11. And our school actually took us to a riding school. I remember we went on a school trip and, and had some riding and I loved it, obviously. So I persuaded my parents to let me continue riding then used to go riding, I think weekly, maybe. So I was about 16, 17, we'd go. And riding school, I think the, the thing that I learned later is the riding school horses. I've never been to a riding school in Australia, but certainly in the UK, are not really like horses. <laughs> they're a very different animal. Yeah. <laughs> they're incredibly well trained and they're, they know their jobs so well. And they make you look like a good rider. You also don't learn anything about how to actually look after a horse. You just learn to sit on a horse and ride around in circles. So I thought I could ride. And my husband, who I then met later, thought he could ride. And it turned out that neither of us could ride that well. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite the revelation when you you thought maybe you were at a certain level and then discovered that you weren't so much. Yes, I've got a little story about that with my husband, but I guess we should get to him before that point. (laughs) A very good, very funny story about exactly why you should not overestimate your ability to ride. I think so you so you rode and then you stopped, you went to university, you started riding again back in the UK before you came to Australia. So you had another riding another dose of riding school. Hmm, So I used to have to get like walk and then get two buses or something to this riding school outside of London or quite far out. And I just decided I wanted to ride one day. I can't remember why. So I used to go weekly to again a different riding school but this actually had levels and it was much more structured than kiddies riding school but still the horses were not normal horses and it was funny even then I remember like I remember having a lesson where there was a horse there was some show day and I managed to I won a riding lesson right on this show day and there was literally a brass band and then some of the just chaos everywhere right and I'm riding this horse that was not happy actually in retrospect um and kept like trying to bolt towards the towards the music I have no idea why anyway but I had this 30-minute one-on-one lesson and I was like, oh, yes, my horse is doing this. We just do this. And it's so strange. Looking back, you're like, what were you doing? The horse was not happy. And me and the instructor were just like, no, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and completely ignoring the fact there was chaos going on. So it's interesting what you did when you didn't know what you know now. Yeah. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, sure. And, you know, we're all doing the best we can with what we know at the time. So well, sure. at the time, well, sure. you and the instructor were doing absolutely the best that you knew. 
And I think my sense of self-preservation has increased slightly since then. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a product of ageing in my experience? I think it's... Maybe ageing, maybe children in my experience. I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, it's definitely shifted. But yes, the riding school was great and I didn't, I just missed riding, I guess. I hadn't done it for like eight years at least. So yeah, I just, I just found it out. And I think if I hadn't have done that, I probably wouldn't have horses today because Mark wouldn't have known that I liked riding. And, and known that that was the hook that he needed to use to reel you over to Australia. Exactly. So your now husband then is, is pitching for you to come to Australia. And so it starts, I mean, I, I, this is just such a marvellous story, I think. So he's sending you adverts for horse properties and, and horses. When he persuaded you, which didn't take very long, he's a very convincing man, I think, and you came out here, did you ride anywhere before you got your first horse here or you were just like up to your elbows in horse life straight off? No, I was living in the UK and then I moved here I came for Christmas, and then I moved here, and then I went back to the UK for work for a while, and then kind of came back. But in the midst of all this, he looked at, we were living in the city, so we were not living at a horse property at all in, in Perth. But he'd found, he was looking at horse properties and stuff, and I remember sitting in the lab in, in London and getting this picture of this yellow horse, right, this Palomino. And he was like, oh my, one of my nurse friends has this horse that she's selling, and you can ride the horse before she sells the horse. So like the, one of the first things that I did, I think, I, you know, one of the first things I did when I moved there was go and ride this horse, who's Apollo, who I still have today. And by the time I got off riding the horse, he was negotiating buying this horse. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a horse very quickly, very, very quickly. So Apollo was the first. Apollo was the first. And we just sit him. And then within six months, we'd moved out to Swan Valley and had him with us, not knowing anything about looking after horses, actually. Are we riding proper horses at all at this point? So, yes. So, it happened very, very quickly. And you can't have one horse by themselves. So, we had to get another horse. And the horse that we got was supposed to be a nine-year-old standard bread, but turned out to be 19 um, because we were totally and utterly, we had no clue and we were totally ripped off. So, that was my husband's horse. And then she was lame, so we had to get another horse. <laughs> so, horses multiply very, very quickly. <laughs> so. And so when did you when did you move or how long have you been at the place where you're living now? Because you've now got your own property and you've got your menagerie of animals. 11 or 12 years, I think, here. We, we rented for six months um, somewhere. That, and thankfully, our neighbours where we rented knew horses and told us things like, you know, your horses are on a lot of grass. Do you know what laminitis is? No, I have no idea. So they taught us, you know, not to leave them on grass and to what to feed them as a hard feed and stuff. And so we got some help there. When we moved here, we kind of knew how to look after horses, which is good. What a steep learning curve for mm. you both of having some knowledge and then realizing just how much knowledge you didn't have when you became um, first-time horse owners and how much there was to learn. Exactly. Yeah, it was huge, huge. Oh, and before this, actually, just my little story. Before we came over to, um, I came over here for Christmas before I moved, and this was before we actually had a horse. So Mark said, let's go bush riding, right? So we went down to Margaret River bush riding. So to the people, he said, we're very experienced horse people. We know how to ride horses, right? I'd, I'd learned dear. quite a bit. He'd, <laughs> he'd had ride lessons when he was like 10 or 11. I don't even know, right, at this point. So he's like, we know how to ride horses. So like, okay, we'll put you on, um, we'll put you on these two horses that we've just got that are staying here for the summer. 
those horses were hilarious. So my horse just kept bolting, constantly bolting, right, constantly running. And his horse was fine until you tried to canter, and then it would just run straight into a tree <laughs> and try and, like, knock him into a tree. So I was, like, finding me how Mark, I'd, I'd known very briefly at this point, right, I'd moved out, I'd seen him for, like, two weeks of my entire life. And every time we'd canter, this horse would just divert off to a tree, and I'd just see Mark kind of start leading, and so he's going to fall off. And then he managed to sit up again, and then he was like, okay, We'll do that again. And then by the third time or so that he'd nearly been thrown into a tree, I was like, we need to stop. I think that cantering is not a good idea with those thoughts. It was hilarious. So from now on, we now say tell to people that we're kind of beginners if we ever ride anyone else's horses because that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and yet and yet, you know, he still won your heart. So He did. You know. It was very adorable. That the headfish was A plus. And how much how much land do you have where you are now? Twelve acres. 12 acres. Yeah. And you've increased your horse numbers from those initial three horses that you had. We have five. We have five stables and five horses and we are officially full. And other animals as well have come along to join your hobby farming life. Yep. So we have three sheep. We have seven or eight chickens. The chicken number is always fluid, right? But about seven or eight chickens, Mr. Rooster, dog, two feral cats, lots of fish. And I think that's it at the moment. And I think probably a key part of explaining your current, um, to paint the picture of your current circumstance is the fact that you and Mark then have a family as well, have had a family since that uh, colourful trail riding date that you went on. <laughs> things, <laughs> things went very well. And you now have two small people in your lives. We do. extended family as well. Yes, it's pretty chaotic. And we, we work. We actually have actual jobs as opposed to farm jobs. Well, we have farm jobs too. But yes, we both work as well. Um, so life is pretty hectic. It sounds it. So you now have five horses or ponies. Mm-hmm. They've been in your life for, so what, 12, 13 years? Yeah, exactly. So Apollo was about 13 years ago. And then Monty came pretty soon after. And then Apollo never came back after my second child. We just couldn't get him sound. When we came back, he had some sort of injury in the hind end. So we decided to retire him after many thousands of dollars of trying to work out what was wrong. We never worked it out, but he was not comfortable. So he got retired. Yep. Monty, who's a beautiful big stock horse, was retired quite. He was Mark's horse. He was also retired. And yep. then we have my Maddie, who's my Morgan, who we got after Apollo retired. We have Cappy. He's, there's lots of retired in here, right? So Cappy, we have who's a retired pony. Hey, my <laughs> son used to ride and my daughter used to ride. He's also, like, they're all, they're, the three of them are over 30 years old now, so they're really old retired boys. And then the baby's Neo, who is nearly two. He's two next month, bizarrely. So he's, yeah, he's a big Frisian Clyde Shire cross, who maybe one day I'll let my husband ride. Maybe. Maybe. I think it's probably timely that we should mention that when you were going to do this podcast, your son made the point that you are fairly vertically challenged yourself. (laughs) So the prospect of you getting on a very large horse may require a stepladder. Yes. So he said that my bio needed to include that I was unusually short at school. (laughs) And I did point out that I'm still unusually short at this point. And he said that, yes, you know, her son, who is a normal height, is nearly the same size as her age 10. I was like, thanks, Jackson. That's helpful. Right. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> so Neo is currently, I would say, 16 hands or over and wow. very wide, as you'd expect, for his breeding. And not yet to. And not yet to. So definitely a stepladder and maybe a side saddle. 
Yes, yes. yes. Your hips may. My hips would look like that. You'll have to see how your hips feel about that when the time comes. Or a carriage. Maybe he can just pull me around. Yes. Well, that would look amazing. So you you came to Australia, you you got Apollo, um, you were adjusting him uh, or you were renting a property and you had these great neighbours that helped kind of illuminate the knowledge that you maybe needed to have and didn't yet have. So then tell us about your learning journey since then, because it, you know, it's, it's quite steep in the last sort of 12, 13 years time. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your your learning journey with horses and your evolution, I guess. Yes, I think that initially there was obviously how do we feed these animals, how do we look after them? And then I think because I'd had riding lessons in the UK, to me it was obvious that I needed an instructor to help me ride. Yeah. And I think just to give me an aim of what to do, I don't know, because you could get on these horses and you could ride around the paddock. <laughs> that said, Apollo did, um, because obviously these paddocks were full of grass, right? So the horses were on hardcore grass, it was next to the river, endless grass. I do remember riding and going, it feels a bit weird, it's a bit bouncy. And then I had some, I was like, can you tell me what this horse is doing? And they're like, he's booking. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's what he's doing. So he was just so full of grass that when we canted, just like doing this bouncing, hopping, booking, crazy thing, which amazingly, I never fell off him. It was very bizarre. And he was very reactive. He was really quite reactive and spooky at stuff, probably because of all the sugars in the grass in hindsight, obviously. Yeah. So I knew that the way to do it was to have a riding lessons. That was the way that you did things. So I found an instructor and I said, yeah, kind of vaguely interested in dressage. You know what dressage was, I guess, because riding school's not... It's different, isn't it? But anyway, so I was like, look, I'll do dressage. So she came to us um, weekly for many, many years, actually, many years, and gave us riding lessons, both Mark and I. And we did a little bit of competition. So I did not with Apollo because he really was very reactive and really, really not fit for going out to places at all. But anyway, once we got our other horses, um, we did some some little dressage competitions and stuff. And when I started going out to competitions and started getting feedback, I realized that actually I still didn't know how to ride. So like the feedback would be, you know, your pelvis is really tilted here. Do you realize you're like, I believe you call it duck ass, don't you? Anyway, so I kind of bent back <laughs> with your bottom. bum yep. sticking out, right? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. So after that, I started going, well, how am I supposed to sit if this is not right? And then I started really getting very interested in rider biomechanics more than horse biomechanics in fact so how can i sit and how should i sit and what should my posture be so i started getting into so ride with your mind by mary wanless which is all online actually so this is my first foray into online training and it was great there was it was an online program there was a lot of um, feedback and i found it brilliant i was really enjoying it but i'm not convinced maddie was particularly enjoying it still so he he never looked, he never felt particularly comfortable on the saddle. There was quite a lot of head shaking and actually a lot of mouth opening. And again, when I went to try and investigate why, when I would go places and say, look, my horse opens his mouth when he's got his bit in it, the advice would be to um, strap the mouth shut. So that was generally what I was always told, was just to close the mouth. And it seemed to help in terms of he didn't open his mouth. <laughs> I'm not sure that it helps in terms of his feeling about the bit. So we did biomechanics and I was trying to work out if I could help him be more comfortable by obviously not pulling and being careful where I sat and being balanced and I'm not convinced it particularly helped him it certainly made me a better rider but unfortunately 
a couple of years into this journey, he decided that he did not want to be ridden. Um, so he would basically, it, it took about, it was about a week or two actually, where he would just start stopping the saddle. And I remember getting off with my riding instructor, I was still having the weekly lessons with, and she said, oh, let's, let's take the saddle off, let's adjust the saddle. So I got off, and then when I got back on again, he was like, still not moving. And over the period of about two weeks, he got to the point where he would stand quite happily for me to get on him and then stand still and refuse to move. Full stop. Just refuse to move. So I started getting the vets at that point. And the saddle fitter, actually. So getting all the all help in to try and work out what was going on with him. Did that shine any light on what was happening for him at that time, the, the work with the vet and the saddle fitter? Yeah, it did not. So the saddle fitter, I think the saddle was probably too narrow, but the saddle fitter said, look, this behaviour is not explained by the saddle. It's such extreme, I call it extreme stopping behavior that we don't think this is saddle. There's something else going on. And I agreed because I did try, actually I did try bareback, I believe, and with the saddle pad, I tried so and, and with a halter. So I tried to take the bridle off, I tried to take the saddle off and still I had this extreme stopping, right? So I tried all these things. The vets really, I mean, this was four or five years ago. So I think maybe the vets have turned a bit in our local area, I'm hoping. But the vets that I got out at that time Try, you know, we ch- we we did um, trotting up, we did lunging, we did all the things, and their general. So I think I had three different vets out. The general consensus that it that it was behavioural, that there was nothing physically wrong. I had one vet tell me that he was taking the piss, and you know, I I would say, you know, I'll nudge him with my legs and he won't move, and I'll tap him with the whip and I won't move, and she'd say, well, what happens if you just hit him harder? And I said, I don't want to find out. <laughs> Because I'm much happier with him standing still than doing something else. Thank you very much. So yeah, so at this point, I decided, look, I'm going to have to either beat this horse into moving. I'm going to have to do something else because that, and I'm not like, I just can't do that. I cannot be that person that just makes the horse do things when he clearly isn't happy. And, you know, two weeks before we were trail riding without any problems. So there was clearly a big change in his behavior. And I just couldn't believe that it wasn't physical. I didn't, I just don't know why he just suddenly started taking the, taking the piss in inverted commas um, when a few weeks before we were working really nicely. So, oh, not, you know, we were working. So I just, I started trying to work out what I could do with this horse, try and persuade him to be ridden again, actually was my point, and to just be comfortable and happy working with me. And on the Ride With Your Mind group, there was someone who used clicker training with rescued and delusions, I think they were. And it was just a one comment of, I use this. Like that was, that was the only, and it's the first time I'd ever heard that word. I'd never even heard of it before. So I started Googling it, started looking into it and started looking at clicker training. But actually, ultimately, back to the, back to the lameness issues. So whilst the lameness assessments never actually showed anything, about a month or two after that, Maddie started coming down with colic. So, which is a real, no, no, no one can deny that you've got health problems, right, if your horse is colicking. So, he colicked twice. And I remember one vet, sorry, this is like, this is not an episode meant to slag off vets, right? And I'm not just here slagging off vets. But anyway, one vet that came out to look at him while he was colicking, right? So, Maddie was in pain, on pain meds, needing, drenching, whatever. And he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't impaction. It was just, he was just really sore. I remember her detailing to me about how when she had a horse that was naughty, it was a mare in the UK that um, apparently his horse was so naughty that it would lay down when you took it out, which is a very extreme naughtiness, right? Or extreme, extreme behavior. Um, obviously, I don't believe it was naughty. Anyway, but the horse was naughty. So how she fixed this horse was to take two riding crops, 
and galloped this horse up and down a beach until she snapped both riding crops and then the horse never laid down again because it respected her. And she's telling me this story while Maddie is in pain in an emergency colic situation. I'm like, what are you, my horse is sick. What are you telling, why are you telling me to beat my horse with, with sticks when he's sick? So it was, just, it was a really very horrendous experience all around. And this idea that the horse is just naughty and every behavior they're doing, including colic at this point, seems to be to do with them being naughty and not respecting you. So it did transpire that he had ulcers which would have explained some of the behavior under the saddle and his uncomfortableness. And then shortly after, he also developed laminitis. So we're pretty sure that he was pre-laminitic as well. So in hindsight, we're pretty sure he was pre-laminitic and had ulcers at that point when he decided not to ride. But they were not diagnosed until much, much later. Sorry, so I've gone off on a total tangent there. I'm backwards again. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really important, because it sounds like it's quite a pivotal part in your story having that sort of that catalytic moment that a lot of us have where something happens and goes pear-shaped in some way and makes you have to start looking outside of what you've known you know like that was almost the 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 trigger point for you to start going okay what I know so far is not working here this is series of not great things have happened with my beautiful horse so now I need to start looking outside of what I know. And I think I could have stayed inside. So I could have stayed inside of what I know, but I would have had to be a different kind of person. I think that I could have probably won the fight with Maddie. I'd be surprised if I wouldn't have done. I, I think I could have probably made him do stuff, but I just knew that he was not comfortable and I did not want, I didn't want to do that. You know, if he wasn't going to, I wanted something in it for him. And if he was so miserable that he would do this pretty extreme behavior to try and get out of it in terms of, standing there and being kicked or standing there and being tapped, that's a pretty extreme behavior to do. So, and I could have probably ex- escalated and made him do it, but it's just not me. And I didn't, I couldn't be that. And I think it's probably wrong. Obviously, I think it's wrong to be that. So I can't be that. So yeah, so that's why I stepped outside. It wasn't really a, la- it was a last ditch attempt for me to have a relationship with my horse rather than for me to make him do something because I could have made him do it, right? There's no doubt I could have made him. Or I could have gotten a trainer. That was the other suggestions people said. Get a, tra- get a stronger trainer that's just going to make him do it and push him through it, which I could have done. But then he would have been doing it and still in pain, which is not fair. Not fair at all. But it is well, I think the ulcers in particular and the laminitis probably very relevant with, obviously, because what I did was I trained from negative reinforcement training, so traditional training, to training with food, with a horse that has ulcers, um, equine metabolic syndrome and food issues. <laughs> So it was not a smooth transition by any stretch whatsoever. It was a very complicated transition because Maddie cares about food more than anything else in the entire world. And he's constantly starving because of his metabolic condition. So it was not easy. It was messy. It was stressful. And there were many times when I thought about giving that up as well. (laughs) But I kept going and we kept trying to find a path that would work. It was still on that path. But yes, it's not not an easy fix. I don't think there is an easy fix really with horses a lot of the time especially when there's physical problems going on. So I feel like at this juncture in the story, we probably had a pretty robust introduction to Maddie because Maddie has been your primary learner, a primary equine learner, I should say, notwithstanding your two children <laughs> um, and, and, and your uh, dog, Ori. But Maddie has been your primary equine learner for a while. So, you know, you said earlier he's a Morgan. So can you describe him for us? Well, he's a 15-2 buckskin Morgan. 
beautiful boy. I got him when he was about eight, but and he'd been doing stuff from very early age. So he did one and a half, two, I think. He'd been doing Equitana from the age of about three or four. He was really very much a been there, done that horse. That loved bush riding. Pretty confident animal, pretty confident horse. Generally felt relatively safe on him. Definitely a different horse to Apollo, who would just spook at everything. He was not that kind of horse. So that was wonderful. And yes, I got him to do trail riding and do a bit of dressage. And yeah, that was my plan for him. But it did not work out like that. With the way that we, so we give our horses a herd and we did try and stick to the line of ad lib here. We're on very little grass, but we tried to stick to the line of ad lib here because it's better for the horses. But he's just so incredibly quick to gain weight. And the shoes on low sugar here. He got, we did pretty much most things right. But it just wasn't enough for him. He's very extremely genetically susceptible to laminitis and equine metabolic syndrome. So I think that that's where it all started going wrong. When he came to us, he did have some resource food guarding issues. So when you'd feed him, he'd pin his ears at the bucket and pin his ears at the other horses. And anyone who's less who's under him, any of his underlings, he's not the, quite the top of the pile of the herd, but anyone who's under him will get attacked to try and chase him away from food and stuff. So he's definitely the most food-obsessed animal, actually, I've ever met, I think, to be perfectly honest. But yes, he's beautiful. He's my family, um, as they all are. But yes, he's, he's a tricky boy. And from the, as I said, from the outset, riding, he certainly would have this open-mouth behavior and stuff and avoid the bit. So he would definitely, like, if I look back at all my riding videos, and this is really why I started the ride with your mind stuff was because he'd always hold himself behind the vertical. So he'd pretty much go around in Volker because he's got that lovely neck. He kind of curl it down to have like have his nose on his chest. And the general consensus is to just take up the rein more and more and more until you get a contact. And then before you know it, you've got the horse nose on his chest, right? So I was trying to learn a way to actually, for me to help him stretch out using my body rather than pull him into anything. So that was my attempts to try and help him be more comfortable with riding but I'm not convinced he was ever that comfortable with dressage type movements which I don't know whether there was yeah I don't know whether there was niggling stuff there to begin with or what happened but we never got that relaxed moving horse that we wanted so and and so how old is Maddie he's now 14 I think yeah 14 15 now yeah and at what point so he he had that initial he had the ulcers, you know, he stopped stopped moving under saddle. Thankfully, you persevered trying to find out what was going on for him physically and then eventually found out he had ulcers and then laminitis. And at some stage, EMS, you, you realised that that laminitis was being triggered by EMS. Where, where did that come in along a journey? So our new vet is like a bit of a leading expert in laminitis and EMS. So I think that it kind of evolved along those lines. I think that over the last few years, I've certainly become a lot more aware of things like EMS and stuff. And there was always, actually, even at the, even at the time when we did the first assessment, we discussed EMS because it's a Morgan and it's so common in the, it's so prevalent in the, in the breed. And we concluded that we had him on a super low sugar diet. So he was, the food that he was getting was the same food that we would give to a horse with EMS. So the diet was being controlled already. So we concluded that we didn't, we weren't going to test for it because we were already managing him as we would an EMS horse, but it just wasn't enough for him. 
we needed even low sugar hair. We needed, you know, we needed restriction hair. We needed absolutely no grass. And so he was already being managed as such. So there was a re- like, there was always that question with him from the beginning about EMS. But once we, once he had laminitis, we obviously had to dramatically change the way that he was managed. And he actually had to live on his own for a good six months while we got everything under control um, with like eight times a day of hair going out and stuff. Because obviously if we left him for too long without hair, his ulcers would come back or flare up. So it was a real, to have a horse that's got ulcers and needs hair restriction is a real challenge. He's told me a lot medically as well as behaviorally. <laughs> Before we even go to the behavior side of things, which we will absolutely get to, and for those people listening, you should know that it, I don't think a single day goes past and hasn't gone past Julia for the last, I don't know, a few years where you and I don't talk about horse behavior on a daily basis um, in <laughs> messages. So be- but, so we will get to that. But before we get there, I'm really interested to know, you know, it sounds like a really challenging situation to manage. You know, you, you bought this horse, you, you didn't know about these health problems they became apparent, you know, somewhere down the track. And it sounds like when you bought him initially, he was the horse you signed up for, you know, you were trail riding and you were having dressage lessons and going out to competitions. And then at some point, you know, there's this sort of critical point where that sort of stops and and things shift and he's no longer that horse that you signed up for, you know, because now he needs this really high level of management. What did you say? Hey, you're going out eight times a day with hay. Eight times, it was ridiculous, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And you weren't able to ride him like you'd wanted to, or not not short of using excessive force that you were not comfortable with. And so before I guess, and I and I know I know these stories kind of can't be told independently of one another. So there's there's absolutely touch points. But how have you evolved that management of him from that point to now? You know, that from from eight times a day, hay, really low sugar hay. I know that. I know that he's now back in a herd environment. So, sure. have you been able to manage that change? Because I've watched you do some of that, and I've been amazed at, firstly, the lengths that you've gone to. And uh, you know, I think can can you please mention and tell everybody in this story about the tracking device? Because I think that is a super cool thing you tried. Yes. Yeah. How did you navigate this to get to get to a situation that's more manageable now? Yeah, so initially, so we're lucky that we've got lots of space and paddocks and stuff. So we just had to put the other horse in a different paddock on a hay round. They're fine, they're all, they just munch the hay. And for Maddie, it was really, the initial management was obviously, in, actually the initial management was in a stable, right? Because he wasn't allowed out. And then we got boots. So once we got the boots, cloud boots, he was allowed to walk again outside. And at that point, we really, we were lucky that we've got a bit of a, lucky we have made, a bit of a track system around our property. So we could play with the water placement and the hair placement to increase movement of Maddie and keep him keep him moving. So from the outset, we would go and put hair at the front of the property in net. So I'd spend I'd wear. So initially, I was weighing out eight bags of hair per day. They all had to be weighed and individually bagged, and then I was carting them out multiple times a day and hanging them from trees or putting them in buckets, or sometimes trying double bagging to try, because the, the initial aim was to try and make sure that he didn't really run out of hair, because he'd eat it so quickly, then he'd have hours without hair, which is really bad for his stomach. So that was the initial one, was just weighing out hair, so much hair, and then driving it, and then leaving it for Alex, then putting out, you know, going again at lunchtime, going again in the evening, then going again at 10 o'clock to do this with the hair. And then once we measured his insulin levels, so we kept track of his insulin levels, um, and then once his neck started looking better, oh, that was it. So yeah, so that was fine. So that that was looking okay. And we started doing a bit of exercise. 
and started helping him. And I had called a Fitbark. So it's a tracking device that you've put on dogs' collars and it measures their movement. So I put one on Maddie and I could tell how many kilometers roughly per day he was traveling. And then we used that as a way to then adjust how we arranged food. So whether we put, when we put hay out and stuff. And it was a bit of a trade-off. So we worked out, you know, if you put it out twice a day, he might do slightly less kilometers. But you know, in terms of my sanity, twice a day is better than four to five times a day. So we kind of did some trade-offs and kept the movement going and kept weight taping him all the time um, and keeping him on those fat pads that he has. But eventually we got down to quite a good weight. But then we got Neo, who's a little full anymore. But anyway, so then we got Neo. And Neo needed to be, I wanted Neo in with Maddie. So I was under some very strange impression that they'd get on very well. Anyway, doesn't matter. So I wanted Neo to be with Maddie. So initially when Neo arrived, he had to be in isolation in one paddock, but I wanted Maddie next to him. So at that point, Maddie had to be in a paddock with less movement, but still restricted here. So I was restricting here, but he had less movement. And we just kept an eye on his weight and it wasn't too terrible. And then when we put them in with Neo, Neo had to, Neo's a baby, so he had to be on unrestricted here. So at this point, we just put out a lot of hair, a lot of different piles of hair because we didn't want them fighting. So we had hair dotted all around the property, but they had more they had more movement back again because they could move around the property together. So we just had hair piles everywhere. I would go out twice a day, I think, and fill up about 12 different stations per day. So or twice a day. So 12 stations twice a day dotted all over the property. So Neo and Maddie would just wander around all day moving. And the movement was good and the weight was okay. Came on, like, he increased weight a little bit, but it wasn't too bad. And then gradually we just reintroduced all the rest of the horses back into the herd again. And then a few months ago, I think, we started finally feeding hair round, well, hair rounds. So rods hair in nets again in large volumes and the weight has stayed down. And that's mostly because it was winter time and we knew that they'd chill it off. But I think also that the, the hair is such low sugar that hopefully he can eat unlimited amounts which is not what he was on when he got laminitis he's also gone onto medication so our new vet who's amazing with laminitis cases has a medication that she's giving ems horses with high high insulin levels so he measured his insulin about a month ago and it was 60 anything over 20 is abnormal um so he's gone on medication to lower his insulin because we're doing everything we can management wise so you need to reduce. We need to reduce his risk of getting laminitis through spring, which is coming, and then hopefully in summer he'll be able to go off the medication again. So there you go. That was a long spiel about how to manage difficult horses. Wow, I mean, it's it's such a big journey you've been on with his with management of you know challenging health issue, but a surprisingly common health issue. I think it's huge. Yeah. In in the UK and US, I believe it's more common than it is in Australia and that the numbers are increasing. So it's it's really interesting challenge. And so all of this management that you've just talked to us about in the last, I don't know, 10 minutes, how long was that in reality? Like from how long has this journey been for you with managing, you know, from, from eight times a day to now? How long are we talking? So Maddie got laminitis in October. 2020 so two years coming up two years so he got laminitis in october and then literally the weekend he got laminitis we went to meet nia the fall uh who'd just been born and i i tell you now if we'd have known the the management that was coming our way with many i'm sure we'd have not gotten another horse <laughs> because we did not we did not know what kind of hell we were in for for the next so it's been two years yeah so the d- twice daily feeding so we've worn from eight times per day down to twice and that's that faded gradually. So for only six months, 
every day weighed here multiple times a day and then at least a year of twice a day feeding driving around putting hay stations out everywhere and it's probably only in the last three to six months that we've managed to get it back to a once a day feeding hard feed and hay pretty much ad lib so it's a lot of it's been a very long journey and i'm hoping we're stable you never know we'll see what spring brings yeah it's always telling when spring comes around again. So, hey, you just mentioned hard feed, but you have an EMS horse. So why is the EMS horse on hard feed? Yeah, so originally the reason why we did twice-a-day feeding was for the, the fall who needed food, right? So these are big boy and stuff. So that was the twice-a-day feeding, and you can't feed one horse without the other because you'll get mighty grumpy. But the reason why Maddie has a hard feed is because he still needs his vitamins and he still needs protein. So the Rhodes here is very low sugar. It's got some protein in it, but not, not quite enough. So he still needs to be balanced out. So actually, Manny just has a balanced feed, a very small amount, it's very low sugar, with a little bit of lucent chaff, tiny amount, just every day, just to get his vitamins in. And then, and just, yeah, just to balance out his diet. Um, and he's also on daily medication now. So uh, getting the horses, every day getting them in to hard feed them, allows me to see how they are, see how each of them are, if they're eating, if they're looking staggery. Obviously, my horses, three of them are really old. So I'm always on the lookout for, you know, is their condition dropping? Are they looking dull today? Are they really, you know, struggling to move? So I like that daily check-in to see where they're at, really. It's been such a journey. And so now, I mean, let's loop back because you mentioned that when things all went pear-shaped, you noticed a post on the Ride With Your Mind group about clicker training or what we might call positive reinforcement training. So in parallel with this health journey, you've also had a, a training journey. So let's, you know, the two, the two have happened together and I would say that one has absolutely influenced the other the whole time. But can you tell us about that? So you were more a conventional trainer. You were using primarily negative reinforcement. What happened? And and you said it, and you did mention it was a bit of a rough transition because you know Maddie's health issues that became apparent along the way. But what made you decide to try this? And then, even though it was tough, why did you stick with it? And and where are you at with that now? That's a big question. <laughs> so take your time. <laughs> yeah. So I think I stuck with it because I'm really stubborn anyway, and I'm determined to get things to work once I start them. So that's an easy question. That's an easy answer. Yeah, so I'd never even heard of clicker training. I'd never done dog. I, I did dog training when I was like eight years old and had a dog, right? There was no such I didn't know what clicker training was. We used to like correct them and give them a carrot when they were well, the dog that was. Um, so I had no idea what positive reinforcement training was or anything. So I didn't know it was a thing. I think if I'd known it was a thing, I would have shifted a lot sooner because it's more me anyway. But anyway, so yes, yeah, so I was definitely traditional because I thought that was the way and that was the only way that you deal with horses. Um, and you had to be the boss and you had to, you know, and all that. So when I found out clicker training existed, I literally started Googling it, looking on YouTube and found some videos. And then there was, I, there was probably more people going, but I just found the, the first people that I found, I started following and working with and trying to do it and essentially kind of trying to teach myself clicker training. So I got, you know, I got a target stick and I got some food and I would get money to touch the target stick and give him food. But all, in all this, I had, you know, a seriously... Oh, that was the other thing. Because the ulcers that I didn't know were there yet, he became really quite reactive, which is totally not Maddie. So he would spook at the wind and stuff. 
So I had this spooky horse that I'm not used to being spooky, right? Who really wants food, but he's really scared of the environment. That you're a target and he'd like touch the target, get the food and bolt off somewhere, then come back. So I'm doing this training with this animal that's just completely over the top crazy, which he doesn't normally, that's just not him. And I was like, this is really weird. Anyway, so I just kept going and I had some actual virtual lessons because it was all online because I couldn't find anyone local, of course. So I shifted from in-person to online. And I think there was quite a lot lost in translation. <laughs> um, or I didn't get a lot of the nuances. I just didn't understand it. So, so yes, yeah, so we taught, you know, we taught head down. We taught backing up. We taught touching a target. And then I think when it all started going really, really wrong was when I started trying to get, it's called get it under stimulus control. So start trying to teach Maddie, you do this when I ask for it and you don't do it when I don't ask for it. And it became very, very messy because what happened, the way that I try to teach this, which is not the way I would recommend anyone do it, is essentially I would let it, so he'd learned to back up, offer backing up, backing up, backing up. And then at one point I was like, okay, so I'm not going to teach him that when I say back, he backs up and when I don't, he doesn't. So the way that I did that, when I would say back, he would back up, I would feed him. I would not say back, he would back up, I would ignore him. So I would essentially just ignore him. And it's actually called, it's, the scientific term is called extinction, where you've previously reinforced behavior and then you no longer reinforce it. What happens in hindsight that I now know because I understand the science is that before the animal gives up doing it, they're going to do it more and they're going to do it bigger and they're going to do it harder to try and get the food from you that they want because it has worked in the past and they don't understand why it's not working now. So for Maddie, this ended up with him backing 10, 20 meters across the arena, hitting fences, bolting off fences. It was horrendous. He was so angry and so upset. And I didn't understand because I was following protocols and I thought that it should work. So I kept looking. I did it probably too long, but it went, like relatively quickly, I said, this is not working. I'm going to try and find someone else who can teach me a different way. And I ended up going to, more towards the dog world, actually, and finding people that work with dogs and people that are amazing trainers that work with horses, but are influenced by the dog world to try and find ways of teaching behaviors without withholding food. So your stubbornness kept you at it? My stubbornness kept me at it. Yeah. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And I think that actually, that I did stop nice and quick. I did stop quite quickly. But I think that Maddie could have become quite dangerous um, had I not stopped quite quickly and tried to find another way. And I certainly felt more threatened by him when I had food and he wanted it than when I was waving a rope and he wanted to get away from it. It's a very different attitude of an animal when they want something versus they just want it to stop. Well, yes, yeah, super stubborn. Because I under, by this point, I understood the I understood the science, and I was like, "Well, the science says it works. Got to work. So it must be me, right? If it's not working, I'm doing something wrong." So my attitude was always, "What am I doing wrong? How do I explain this better to him so that we can get it working?" So yes, yeah, so I kept looking, and I, I don't know how many. I think I've done so many courses, and I've worked with so many trainers, and I just kept looking, and I kept looking, looking, and I now work with uh, have really pretty much weekly meetings with Monty Gwynn and Peggy Hogan, who are wonderful trainers over in the US and Canada, who keep me on a more of an even track and stop me going off down so many tangents and help me help Maddie to understand to understand more, to understand the game, to play the game and not get so frustrated by it. So yes, but it's been a it's four or five year journey at this point and still evolving. So yes, I'm very, very stubborn. <laughs> 
clearly because I'm still going. So I mean, that's good to know. I'm not sure if we've uh, touched on your stubbornness in our friendship, <laughs> friendship today. That's <laughs> uh, handy to know. Um, so you, I mean, it, it sounds like you've you've kind of had the two journeys happening together. You know, his, his health and then the the training side of things. How much do you feel that his health issues have impacted the training side of things for you both? I think they're massive. I think that with a different horse, I would have been able to use the methods that I tried to use on him and gotten away with it and it would have been completely fine. But Maddie really pushes me to be so clean and so good because I have to be because he will not tolerate anything but that. And even like, I think it's just, it's constant. And even with not, even with not, Maddie, even with just horses, I think that the health of them influences their behavior so much. It's just, it cannot be underestimated. So a recent experience we had was where in the last few weeks, the horses have been quite, like Maddie's been quite reactive again, which is very unusual for him. And Neo, who's generally pretty chilled with the world, has also been a little bit grumpy, a little bit impatient with me and my training, which is really unusual. And then we clicked that actually there's obviously there's grass coming up, but we think that they're not getting enough hay out of the hay net. So about so we just started feeding free hay now, um, and everything seems to have settled down. So I think the more what I'm what I'm learning is that if the horses are behaving any differently than what their standard is, I immediately go to health and feed, actually, and what they're eating, because I think it influences them so much so much and we can't necessarily control it all and we can't necessarily know what's happening with them all the time but to err on the side of caution can hopefully stop problems rather than just doing the same thing and getting in a, di- a bigger bigger hole and um, hopefully that can help bring them back again and so then into the family came neo how old was he when he first landed? Because he's quite a different character. Yeah, six months. And he's been with you so... year and a half nearly. Almost 18 months. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So tell us a little bit about him and his training and health journey, I guess, in comparison. Yeah, so Nia's a Frisian cross Clydesdale Shire. And I actually know one of my friends who also does positive reinforcement training has his brother. So I met his brother. who's big, big boy, 17 to gorgeous boy. I liked him a lot, I liked his personality. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, Mark lost his horse early last year. No, early the year before last, sorry. This big time flies. Um, he lost his big horse. And I was like, oh, it'd be nice to have another big horse around so that Mark can ride with me if he wants to and if the horse wants to. Anyway, actually, this, no, I was still, I was into choice at that point. So that was my logic. If the horse wants to, Mark could ride him. Anyway. So, yeah, so I, want, I was looking for a big horse and then the breeder, I think I contacted the breeder at some point and she just emailed us one morning photos of this baby that had been born. And Mark must have been feeling, I don't know why, he must have been feeling, it's pre, pre-laminitis, right? Like literally a few days before laminitis, but he must have been feeling weak or half asleep because he's like, yeah, okay, let's get a horse. <laughs> and so we saw, so we saw these photos of this horse and I was like, Look, he's black. You like black horses. Um, so, yes, that was it. So, we went down to see him at 10 days. <laughs> we might do things impulsively sometimes. Anyway, so we went down to see him at 10 days. He's very cute. He's very friendly. And then, yeah, that was it. We pretty much put a deposit, deposit on him within a week or two. And, yeah, went down and saw him a few times before he came. And then the baby just came. So, yeah, just rocked up in the middle of the night to no paddock. 
very scared, poor darling. He's, for the first few days, he's quite well behaved because I think he's kind of frozen to the spot. He's a bit of a freezer kind of horse. But then once he kind of got his bearings a bit, he was not having not a bar of us for a couple of weeks. So it could about two weeks before he'd let me touch him or come to me. And then it probably took another month or so before I wanted to eat from my hand. He liked scratches. So we started with scratches. He loved scratches. And now he loves people. Loves, loves people. Loves cuddles. Loves scratches. It's really wonderful. So he has good upbringings I could give him and very much has very positive associations with people. He's really cuddly. In terms of training, his rhythm of training is much, much slower than Maddie. So he needs time to chew and think and arrange his body and move. And it's really hard for me, who works with Maddie, he's just the quickest horse in the world. And if I stop for a second, he's losing the plot. Um, so I've got to be able to like be a reasonable pace for one and then the other one just slow down and breathe and calm. But he's a dude. He's such a dude. He's doing really well. In general, obviously, when I mess up or when he's you know not got enough hair, he's not happy. But in general, we're making pretty steady progress, I think. And it's hard. It's hard not to push. The key is not to it's really hard not to try and get more 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 um, and let him kind of choose the pace that he goes at but he's lovely he's just learning how to respond to rope cues and stuff because he's had none of that so he's had he's a complete he's had none of the negative reinforcement really at all certainly not since he came to us so everything's new and everything's different and his so his attitude to things like ropes and rope pressure is totally different to a normal a normal horse because he has no clue what it means which is kind of adorable and sweet but at the same time, if you forget, you try and get go somewhere, you're like, oh, the horse doesn't move. What's going? You, you forget because that's what all horses do and he has no clue. So you have to like rewind and remember that you're working with Neo. So yeah, he's lovely. And so you are, you know, four to five years down your positive reinforcement training journey and now you have a youngster and you have the oldies as well. And I know that Cappy the Pony gets some training at times because he's had a very challenging history and you're still... Still so, I mean, I know the answer to this, right? But for our listeners, where are you at now with, with positive reinforcement training? So I am most definitely sold on it. It's more of a philosophical thing for me. So I have to, because I'm stubborn and because, well, I am stubborn, but mostly it's because of the, my philosophy is that I want my animals to choose to participate in what we do together and get some benefit from it. And I think that in an emergency situation and in a, you need this for your health, is very different to, I want to ride you. I want to take you out trail riding. I want to do this and the other, because that actually is, it's, it's not for the, it's not really for the benefit of the horse. It's for my enjoyment. And I would like to persuade them that they also get enjoyment from it rather than just make them do it and put up with it. So I am all about building a conversation with, title for your podcast, building a conversation with my horse um, or a dialogue where they can feel comfortable to say no or yes. And I don't take that as a personal insult, make them do something and adjust my behavior to make them want to do it. So I'm all about trying to persuade them to do something using positive reinforcement rather than make them do something using negative reinforcement. So yeah, so that's where I'm at now. It's more, basically, I've had to describe myself with more dialogue-based, choice-based training where the animal gets to choose the pace and they get an influence to say on what we do together. Yes. Which the dog world's been at forever, well, for 20 or 30 years. So I think that it's more in, more in kin with, with that um, philosophy. 
feel like there are so many rabbit holes from what you've said that we could go down. It's a bit like when you get stuck on YouTube and one video leads to another, to another, to another. So you also have a dog and you just mentioned the dog training world. And and maybe could we just quickly touch on that because now you use positive reinforcement in training your dog, Ori, and have been learning in that space too. And I guess for listeners who are new to positive reinforcement, the first part of it is that the application is not just for one species. Yeah, exactly. We've had Ari, Ari's just turned one. So we got it. we've had him about nine months now. And before then, I had some really old dogs who were just adorable and lovely, but we didn't do any active training with. They were just our farm dogs. But prior to Ari, if we're going to talk about different species, I've trained our sheep with positive reinforcement because they were very scared of people when they came. They were pretty much feral. I took some feral cats that were deemed too scared of people to go into a home environment. So we took them as barn cats. I've trained them with positive reinforcement. One of them is now constantly with me when I'm trying to train the horses, trying to get affection. Um, So that worked. Uh, The point is that positive reinforcement definitely works on all species. But Ori, I think dogs are probably one of the easiest species. So Ori is a standard poodle cross. We got him at about three three months old, Uh, maybe two, whatever, two months old. And he is beautiful. He's such an easygoing dog. He's a beautiful family pet. So he's family. He's amazing with children. He's generally very chilled, not got any reactive issues, loves other dogs, loves other people. He's a really easy puppy to have. Um, yeah, so Ori, when I got him, we started going to puppy classes and now we're going to dog training classes. But I think the biggest shock to me was that, well, not a shock, I should have known this, but the biggest contrast to me was that obviously finding positive, because I was like, look, I need to find some positive reinforcement classes for my, my dog, right? And they're all positive reinforcement classes. So I could, any day of the week, I could probably go and find 50 different classes in uh, Perth to go to with my dog and it'd all be positive reinforcement. It'd all be food-based. So to go somewhere with my animal with a food pouch and stuff and have them even feeding my animal and bringing food for them, I was like, Wow. <laughs> you would never see this in a horse place ever. So it's just such a massive contrast of and things that you know that you talk to you talk to horse people, it's a revelation about don't make that you know, if your puppy's afraid of something, don't drag them up to it, you know. Take them away from it so they're not afraid anymore and like, give them space and stuff. And you talk like this to dog people, they're like, Yeah, of course. That's the way it should be. And if you mention this to a horse person, they'd be like, But you can't let them get away with that. You've got to make them go to the thing. You know, if you let them get away with it, they'll never go to the thing and the world will fall apart and it will dominate you. So it's a really interesting contrast. So yeah, so with Ori, I do in-person training and I also still, because I just love online training, I've become completely addicted to online training. So we also have at least one online course going on at a time. And I found it amazingly helpful for the dog and really easy. I think because there's so many dog training courses and so many dogs being trained with positive reinforcement that the structure of it all is very clear so we're doing obedience at the moment and the structure of the class is so incredibly solid that and they've seen like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dogs so they know how to tailor to each animal so it just it just works really well and always doing really really well and he's really easy to train makes me feel better when I have a bad day and I'm like I'm the worst trainer in the world with my horses and go do something with my dog feels so much better than I could actually train an animal <laughs> and I think you also are, you know are not grappling with the health issues that you've had with Maddie that have really exactly. impacted and compromised your training yes you've been so influential on your training you have a for all intensive purposes really healthy young dog exactly and 
Yeah, so you don't have that as well. No history. Not He's not got 15 years of history of being of negative reinforcement. And, you know, we go out. I remember the first day I went out with him for a walk in a big stall. It was really windy. And I went out and I was like, oh, my goodness. Spooky. I started getting spooky. I was like, oh, the wind is really bad. And I was just like, oh, look, it's windy. And I'm like, oh, my God, he doesn't get spooky in the wind. Because I'm just, I'm, I've been working with horses for so long that they're very environmentally sensitive and they're very weather sensitive. And dogs generally aren't. So it's an incredibly different situation. They tend to be more stable behaviorally, I think, because, well, we can control the environment in the house. We can control everything they eat. We know exactly what they're eating, and it can be the same. It's not variable depending on which paddock they get into. And they don't, even when out and about, generally, the weather doesn't really affect them very much. So I think it's, they're very different animals, and we can control their lives massively more than we do horses, no matter how we try. Yeah. Again, so many threads. But the one I want to tug on a little bit further is just you've mentioned a few times now that the the virtual, the online training, and that that you really have gotten a lot out of that. But you've also done training face to face, both with horses and dogs. And I know you know we've we've had COVID going on now for two and a half years. It's you know really impacted our ability to do things face to face, and it still is here in Australia anyway. With with people who get unwell are now staying home. You know people aren't. Now going out if they're unwell, which is, I mean, is uh-huh. fantastic, but it, it does impact people's ability to do things face-to-face now. So can you maybe just elaborate a little bit more on how you found the online, the virtual training experience and what the benefits are, I guess, of, of doing that? Because a lot of people may not have tried it before. No, and I think COVID helped me immensely in terms of online experience because all of a sudden the people that were doing clinics couldn't anymore. All these people that I've been trying to follow how-to videos from, all of a sudden I could see face-to-face on Zoom. So having been able to have that that dialogue and feedback from video and stuff has been massive. I think without, obviously COVID was horrendous, but without COVID, I don't think there'd be anywhere near as many online opportunities as there are now. For me, it was very much out of necessity that I went online because there was no one in person. It was as simple as that. I had no choice. But in terms of advantages... I think they're quite dramatic in terms of, certainly in terms of a clinic. So in terms of being able to train my horse at home in the environment he's the most comfortable with, set up everything myself, that is definitely a huge benefit of taking my horse to a clinic because it just reduces a lot of the variables. With my dog even, I I learn much more from online. He learns much more from online stuff because I can set up the environment completely at home. And then when I go to our in-person class, I can essentially test it out there and proof it there. But I'm not really teaching him new behaviours out and about because that's not the best environment to learn in. The best environment to learn in is at home. So that works really well. I would say that not all, I guess not all online is equal and you've just got to find out what works for you. So I, as I said, I've worked with vast number of trainers at this point, all of which I've learned some amazing things from and some of which I've learned what is not going to work for me and my horse. Like my horse in particular, I can't withhold food with. I don't know whether anyone should, but some horses you can certainly get away with that. You can get away with standing there and waiting for them to do the thing you want them to do. Maddie will not let me get away with, with that. So you need to keep looking until you find people that you gel with and methods that seem to be working for you. I think the big the biggest danger with online is that you have a you have a recipe and you do the recipe and it doesn't work. So you just do it again. You're like surely if I just keep doing it, eventually it'll work, right? Because it's written down here and it should work and I've seen it work. But it needs to be tailored to your animal and you need to be able to get that conversation going where your animal can give you feedback on what's working. And then if it's not working, stop digging the hole 
and they try to get help to get out of the hole that you've dug. So yes, I love it. I love my online. And I think because with me as well, because I've got, you know, I do a lot of driving to school run, I've got a job to do, I've got to look after these horses. I'm very, I always say I'm incredibly unreliable. I think if I wasn't self-employed, I'd not be able to be, I'd be unemployable <laughs> because I'm just totally, you know, because, I, you know, at moments of a drop, a drop of a hat, I have to be able to look after children or pick them up from school or whatever. So I think that um, having that flexibility to be able to put, fit things into your schedule is vital, vital for me. Such a, such a valid point about the, um, being able to do it when it works for you yeah. and your animal and your learner as well. So you're not tied into my lesson is it or my dog obedience is at 10 a.m. on a Saturday come rain, hail or shine, even if where the weather, you know, it's super windy or there's a storm and, you know, my learner's uncomfortable. It's exactly. you, you can you can then train on a timeline that works. Yeah. works and I think you. it's different because if it's raining, I can still go dog train with my dog and it rarely it doesn't really affect him very much to be honest he's not bothered by the rain if it's windy he's not particularly bothered if it's super windy and I go out and try my horses I have to work in protective contact I have to be very aware of where they're looking in case they spook I have to change it and if I had a lesson planned and it was like if I had a, someone come to my house and it was a storm it would either be cancelled or it would be a total waste of time and money because you're you know you're fighting you're fighting conditions that are just not suitable to train really So Julia, I know that you and I could talk. I mean, we do talk for hours and hours and hours about how we manage and train with our horses on a daily basis. On a daily basis. So we could keep talking forever, uh, but I'm conscious that uh, we should wrap up and go and actually do things with our horses. And hopefully we can continue the conversation because I know you and I have talked about some other topics that we really think are worth unpacking in a little bit of detail in the horse world so hopefully we will get to see you and hear from you again on an equine conversation just before we wrap up what would be your you know you've had a, a really roller coaster journey with your horses particularly with Maddie I guess I'm interested to understand what would be your top tips for our listeners the top takeaways that you I think we discussed the other day yours is a bit of a, a cautionary tale on a number of fronts so what would be your top tips for people? I've got four written down. My top one would probably be to learn to observe your horse and get to know your horse. So horses obviously have personalities and they have ways that they are. And if you can see just in general how they are, you know, how they are feeling that day, how they are acting that day, if they're responding differently to you, if they're responding differently to each other, make note of those things and change something. So if you're training and your horse is starting to look a little bit uncomfortable, you need to be able to adjust to make them more comfortable again so you can build that conversation. So you can see the slightest change in the horse and acknowledge it. And then the horse will, you know, then the horse won't need to escalate. I always say that if you learn to listen to the whispers, then the horse won't need to shout, which is a really good way to keep yourself safe because your horse won't need to be very loud with you, which you do not want. And following on from that, if your horse is behaving differently, then get a vet. And I know that my vet tail essentially ended up with very little help, but you know, get a vet and keep and keep getting a vet and get a different vet and find a vet who will not tell you your horse is taking the piss and who will actually help you work out what's going on with your horse or make them comfortable. And even before that, actually, maybe just look at your feeding situation because I think that makes a huge difference in um, our horse's lives. My last two are to do with 
training, which is if things seem hard with your training or are not going the right way, don't just keep doing it and hoping it gets better because it's not going to. So don't be that stubborn. Be there. Don't be that stubborn. Stop and find an expert to get advice. And when you find an expert, if their advice doesn't seem to help and you're still finding a struggle and it's still hard, find a different expert and keep going to people until you find someone that really works with you and your horse um, and you start seeing progress. And he talks your language. I mean, I'm, I'm all about science and the actual scientific terms and, and analytical, but there's many ways that you can teach the same thing. And you've got to find someone who speaks the language that works with you and gels with you. And then finally, a specific one would be, please don't withhold food with your animals. There's many ways you can train without doing that if you're doing positive reinforcement. And you can really minimize frustration. I think a lot of the frustration in our horses comes from us having food, then wanting food, and then not knowing how to get us to give them it. So if we can explain that better without just standing there holding food and making them more and more frustrated, it makes training much more fun for everybody. And hopefully we'll make you end up in less holes to dig yourself out of. Thanks, Julia. I think they're really solid tips there. So learning to observe and get to know your horse, uh, keep pushing vets and finding vets that you, you know, can, can help you work through the journey that might be your horse's health. If something isn't working, stop, get expert advice and keep keep trying to find the expert that really fits for you and your learner. And do not, you know, if you're training with positive reinforcement, look at ways to train that means you're not having to withhold food and avoid that frustration. So some really solid advice there. Thank you so much, Julia Inglis, for being on an equine conversation with us today. It has been fantastic to hear your story, some of which I've heard before, but I always get, I always have new, oh, I didn't know that part <laughs> when I hear people's stories over again. I think it's, it's such a great opportunity for people to learn from other people's experiences. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you again in future. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. We hope this episode has given you some information to take away, contemplate and put into practice. Now for some important additional announcements. Firstly, I want to thank you all so much for supporting Series 1 of An Equine Conversation. So far, you have been tuning in to listen to us from across Australia, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Sweden, Singapore, India, the Netherlands, Israel and beyond. I hope you have enjoyed the content we have put out as part of this first series. It has been a labour of love and if someone had told me all that's involved in putting together a podcast at the start, I think I'd have run a mile. So it's a good thing I was blissfully ignorant. There are so many people who've supported our business, Abby's Run Equestrian, and this podcast, An Equine Conversation. And I will no doubt miss people, so I can't name everybody, but there's just a few people that I need to mention. Firstly, Matthew Bliss, who has provided enormous support with the production of this podcast. It wouldn't have been possible without Matt's help at all. To be fair though, it was Matt who lit a fire under me that I didn't even know was waiting to be lit about creating a podcast. So I can kind of blame Matt a little bit as well and it's great he's been here to help us along the way. And you, our audience, have Matt to thank for an equine conversation existing too. 
Julia Inglis, who stars in this episode, has provided a regular sounding board for ideas and even proof listening to the odd episode. Enormous thanks to you, Julia, and for agreeing to come on the podcast with minimal arm twisting required. And very lastly, to my partner, Ben, without whose support, our business and this podcast would not be possible. For the hours he spends outside sorting our horses out while I'm sat at the computer doing all the podcasting and business things. What a dead set legend he absolutely is. Now, for the most exciting announcement, we will be back with series two in a few months time. I am so excited. Planning is already underway and we may already have a few exciting guests lined up. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and on our email list to be the first to hear about series two. But we would love your input to help us deliver what you would like to hear in series two and beyond. To get some of your feedback and ideas, we've got a super short survey we would love you to give a few minutes of your time to. The link to the survey is now on our podcast webpage, on our Facebook page, and will be sent out to our mailing list. It will be open for responses up until the end of February, and we would so love your feedback to help us build what we bring to you in future. Abby's Runner Question is also gearing up this year to start offering virtual learning opportunities, recognizing that not everybody can get here to join in the Start Your Engines Course Plus workshops. So be sure to join our mailing list, follow us on Facebook and listen to series two of an equine conversation to find out more. Thanks so much, awesome peoples. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, that's awesome. We love your work, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and let your friends know about us too. Sign up to our emailing list at www.abbysrunnerquestion, which is A-B-B-E-Y-S-R-U-N-E-Q-U-E-S-T-R-I-A-N.com.au to be the first to hear about upcoming activities and programs on offer. You can also find us at Abby's Run Equestrian on Facebook. We have our autumn Start Your Engines Course Plus workshop happening from the 24th of March through until the 2nd of April 2023. Start Your Engines Course Plus workshops are a week-long online course culminating in a full weekend workshop on site at Abby's Run Equestrian in Northeast Victoria. The week-long course content is designed to fit in around your daily work life so you're not needing to take time off. The course includes short, bite-sized presentations and small but important pieces of homework to get you thinking and prepared for the weekend. Then, when we get together, it's hands-on and all systems go with us and our horses. Your learners get to stay at home where they are most comfortable. The weekend involves discussion, various games, learning and practicing mechanical skills and hands-on time with our equine team. This Course Plus workshop will help get you started or help continue your learning journey in training using positive reinforcement. Show notes from this episode are available online. Our intro song is Ventura by Morgan Taylor via Soundstripe. Thank you to Matthew Bliss for podcast production and consultation. If you'd like him to help with your podcast, get in touch by email at info at blissery.fm. Big scratches to your ponies from the Abbey's Run Equestrian team, everyone. And we look forward to seeing you back here for Series 2 in a few months' time. Bye.